Welcome to another edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast. This for UFC Mexico City. Paul Shaughnessy in studio. Producer Megan on the sticks. Cody Saftik is on the line. The regular band, pretty much every single week, is back together here. This episode of the Dogger Pass Podcast. And this is the last episode of the Dogger Pass Podcast. It's brought to you by Prize Picks. Use promo code DOP when making a new account to get a match up to $100. On your first deposit, uh, I got, I mean, Cody, it was good that I went on vacation because I would have got slapped even harder on uh, on last week's card. Um, really? What? I had, Why I had, Vol- I had Volk in the main event. I mean, I, I, I ended up being less, in, less invested than I would have been. But yeah, I lost, I lost, I lost some money, a little bit of money. Really? But yeah, if I was, if I was around, I would have lost a lot more money, so. See, see so I don't, bad. I don't see, I don't see how that was. Last week was probably my best week of the season. We're on a, officially a two-week win streak to move our overall record on three and two on the year. But again, it's a streak now. But last week went like exceedingly well. Had Volk won, yeah, then we would have hit four lines and a plus twelve hundred ticket on top of the top three. But uh, yeah, no, these, last week there was twelve fights and eleven favorites won. I shot for four underdogs. Those four underdogs all lost. But then luckily for me, they were like all the bottom picks. But yeah, everybody that needed to win won. You know, Robert Whitaker came through. I know you were hating on Ian Gary, but I ended up taking him, taking him by decision. I didn't hate on him. I actually was, picked him and I said, I hope he lo- loses, but that I liked him. I I was telling people that all week. Like, yeah, man, I, I hope he loses. But then when it comes down to it and you're sweating per lay tickets, you're like, please, God, please, God, just let this fool win one more time. One more time. The next time, the next time I'll fade him. And then he can lose. But this time right here, just let him win. Anyways, he wins. Uh, there was a bunch of close fights, but at the end of the day, like those that that like key six won. Even like oh oh Ben and like uh there was like some greasy picks to start out the card. Got the job done. Quinlan got knocked out, never been knocked out before, got knocked out on that prop in terms of uh hand of God getting it done. So yeah, it was solid week. This week, way difficult. I mean, it's again, it's another, it's another card that looks like mostly favorites. I can't identify a whole bunch of favorites that I would say I love, but there's definitely some key underdogs here that probably are going to come out and win. There's also a nice looking LFA card on the Friday, a, uh, the PFL versus Pelotor card on the Saturday. It's a loaded week. This card on the Friday as well. Uriah Faber's A1 fights like on the Thursday. There's just so many fights this week that I'm super excited to break down these fights with you. But it, but I think I'm going to be a little smart with my bankroll management this week. In terms of UFC fights, maybe just pick and choose what I really like because it's kind of, it's kind of a trappy card. But it's a trappy card I hope to hit a PRP on. And we're going to do our damnedest to get it done. But reality says better to just pick and choose from all of these other cards and make something safe than, you know, forcing a couple spots on this one. 100%. Yeah, buddy, it was, for what I had done the previous week, it was an absolute drop in the bucket. So, like, there's zero, zero stress. And as I said, it was like, yeah, I had uh, Barlow by knockout. That was, like, the only bet that I made that actually Barlow, yeah. yeah. But, uh, no, like, zero, zero sweat off my back, to be perfectly honest. Let's move into UFC Mexico City. We got Brandon Moreno taking on Brandon Royval. Battle of the Brandons. Uh, it's the second time that they are fighting each other. Um, Moreno is a minus 300 favorite. Royval can be had for plus 240. I mean, the first time that they fought each other, 
I feel like Brandon Moreno was getting the better of the exchanges. He found three takedowns. He was had no real problem with Brandon Roy Val's guard. Um, obviously, it was an unfortunate situation where Roy Val's shoulder pops out literally with like a second left. In between that and the judge's de- or you know official decision or whatever, uh, his coach is able to like pop his shoulder back in. So potentially he could have fought, but he still looked like he was in pain. Um, one of those freak injuries, but like from what we saw, I mean, I can't really fault the line for being where it is. Like, I feel like Brandon Moreno is kind of a terrible matchup for Roy Val. Roy Val's got some sneaky submissions. I mean, he got him, he got uh, Moreno into a bit of a guillotine when, uh, when he was shooting for a takedown early on, but Moreno was able to get out of that. And frankly, it's like Moreno's just cast iron. The chin is just so solid. It's like I don't really know if Moreno can or if Roy Val can do much to really rattle him in that respect. Minus three hundred is minus three hundred. I don't think it's going to be a shoulder injury round one finish by any stretch of the imagination this time around. I won't be surprised for a Moreno by decision. To be perfectly honest, after seeing, you know, Roy Val kind of prove that he's been working on that cardio, able to go uh, the distance. I'm not concerned about these guys at altitude to be perfectly honest. Cause Roy Val did show us against Pantoja. It's like, he's been working on that. He slowed down a little bit in the later rounds, but uh, a lot of his like cardio issues were definitely overblown. He's made a lot of improvements, but I think, uh, Moreno, Brandon Moreno gets it done again. What about you? Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and agree. So I'm a big Brandon Royval fan, and I don't think he's got cardio issues. The guy pushes a hell of a pace, trains at altitude to begin with, and I think generally has good cardio. It's more of a bit of a durability issue. Like, he can put some absolute heat on opponents, but when they return fire, whether it be an injury, whether it be, you know, he gives up his back in a scrambling, gives up a submission, whether it be he gets rocked in a fight, the longer these fights go, these these higher-level, super-high-class fights, the more, you know, he'll have some vulnerabilities here and there. But I actually did pick him to upset Pantoja in his last fight. Came in, kind of a bit of a wild card, big underdog. You know he's going to bring it. You know he's, in the first fight against Pantoja, he was doing really well before he got caught in that rear naked choke. I think there's a lot to like about Brandon Royval. Thing is that he showed in that Pantoja fight, Paul, is that his takedown defense is a serious problem. It's bad. It's 40% in the UFC, but, but everybody takes him down. And I wouldn't say it's bad because he's fighting legitimately good guys, but they're all taking him down. Pantoja got down eight times. Previous to that, Rodrigo, uh, Rogerio Bontran had taken him down eight times. Pantoja, the first time they fought, had taken him down three times. Moreno took him down twice. Tim Elliott, back in the, t- back in the day, took him down four times. You can look at some fights and be like, oh, Matus Nicolau never took him down. Matt Schnell never took him down. Kaikar France never took him down. N- none of those guys actually shot any attempts. Kaikar France is credited with one because he was rocked and he tried to grab a hold of him. But none of those other guys shot a takedown. The guys that want to wrestle Roy Val clearly are going to be able to do that. Now, he's got a nasty guard. He's got a decent get-up game. He's got this crazy cardio. He's always throwing. Even in that Pantoja fight, he landed 55 significant strikes in the fifth round fifth round he landed more in the fifth round than he did in the previous four so you know he's a dog you know he's gonna be there but the ability to take him down in the first four rounds and hold him down is a problem then you brought up that cast iron durability of moreno and that's that's gonna be kryptonic to his game as well because that quick knockout that he might be able to catch you with that quick guillotine choke he might be able to catch you with highly unlikely that he's submitting or knocking out brandon moreno and so he's gonna have to dog fight him for five rounds and in a five round dog fight they're both gonna be landing but Moreno's ability to mix in those takedowns is going to secure it in front of a hometown crowd, a Mexican hometown crowd. Like, 
they're going to be they're going to be hot they're going to be in for their fighter and the who knows who's judging these fights but you would assume that there's going to be a bit of a hometown bias there all I'm saying is that, yeah, Moreno seems to be it. Now, is the line a little bit too much? Maybe, but keep this in consideration. Moreno's getting ready to take on Amir Albazi in this spot. Albazi pulls out, and you got Royval coming in on short notice. Not only is Royval coming in on short notice for a fight that's a mile high in the air and five rounds against a guy that already beat you who can easily fight 25 minutes on a bad day, on top of all those things, is he literally just fought like eight weeks ago, five rounds against Pantoja. He fought late December. And now he's getting a quick February turnaround. Like, I don't know. I don't know. The deck is stacked against him, certainly. So Moreno's the favorite. Is he this big of a favorite? It's justifiable. It's justifiable. And I'm not going to play contrarian. I I'll take the favorite. Yeah. I mean, the, the saving grace, I suppose, for Roy Val is that he trains in Denver. I know it's only the mile-high city. And Mexico City is like the two-mile-high city. Uh, it's like 10,000 feet altitude. It's insane. But ten thousand uh, compared to eight thousand, so yeah, it's like two thousand more. I'm pretty sure. Um, sure, but um, but at the end of the day, yeah, it's like that. That I feel like at least living up there, training up there, coming off of the couch, I would be a little bit more concerned about someone who trains in Florida and lives in Florida and like you know takes this opportunity on really short notice. I think that would be a bigger a bigger red flag. Um, you know. And like you start questioning whether they're down there adapting to the climate and stuff. Like I remember, I went out to to Whistler for a buddy's bachelor party, and like by no means am I, you know, a peak physical specimen like these two gentlemen. But buddy, like I I went skiing, felt sore, and it's just like I just felt like I never really healed until I got back to like the East Coast here. You know what I mean? It's like like my muscles were sore, but it's like because you're not gaining enough oxygen, you just never really like feel. You know, it's just like you never really felt, I never really felt better. Like, I went back out a couple times skiing, but it was just like an absolute bloodbath. Um, but I'm old and broken, so these guys are young in the primes <laughs> of their life. Maybe it's a, a bit of a stretch for, my, for me to compare myself to them. We move on. We've got Yair Rodriguez taking on uh, Brian Ortega. Yair Rodriguez is a minus 150 favorite. Ortega can be half a plus 130. I mean, these guys obviously fought the shoulder injury that happened between these guys seemed inc like even even more fluky, perhaps like Ortega was having a lot of success in round one there. He was fighting the type like if you were going to back Brian Ortega, he's fighting the exact kind of fight that you want. You know that this guy's cast iron. His chin is legendary. The striking has kind of come along over the years, but he was fighting so smart. It's like he was staying inside of kicking range. He was like, he'll eat some jabs to land some hooks, you know, stay right in the pocket, keep backing Yair up, keep backing him up. Um, and then he held him up against the cage a little bit. Like, you know, take all of your opponent's best weapons away. Like rewatching that this afternoon before coming in here, I was just like, my biggest question of why... It may be hard to pull the trigger on Brian Ortega. Is obviously he had that shoulder injury. It's been a year off, a year and a half off. So I will pick him for the purposes of this show, but I am considering actually backing Brian Ortega. I'll probably wait for weigh-ins just to make sure, I don't know, everything kind of adds up, everything looks right. But I don't know. I liked what I saw from him in that fight. If I back Brian Ortega... The way he fought before he got injured there is exactly what I want him to do against Yair Rodriguez. So Ortega is the pick for me. What about you? 
Yeah, like, want to pick Ortega? Think I might pick Ortega. If I got a gun to my head, take a couple underdogs on this card, Ortega certainly is one that is looking appealing. But, dude, it would be a total shot-in-the-dark wild card pick. Like, mm -hmm. you mentioned he's been off a year and a half, which is an issue on itself. He is 33 years old, so it's not like he's super young. The year-and-a-half-long year layoff due to injury, getting into his mid-30s, let's say. He's lost his last two fights. He's one in, in three over his last four fights. It's not It's not been a great run, let's say. And on top of that, it's like he hasn't finished an opponent in six years, right? He hasn't won a fight in like three and a half years. He hasn't finished an opponent in six years. Those wins, you know, whether it be Frankie Edgar or Korean Zombie, like none of those, those didn't age well. The win over Moicano aged well from 2017, but you'll remember that fight. He lost the first two rounds and caught him in the third. So... There's all you're, you're putting a lot of faith in what's not there. Like he was a top contender four or five years ago. He's beating relevant names, or even those guys were in the tail end of their careers. Truth be told, but at least he was beating some of the top-ish guys back then. But then stepped up against Max Holloway. He took a life-changing beating. Maxed up against Alexander Volkanovsky. He had a couple moments with the guillotine and the triangle, but outside of that, he took a relative beating. And then the year Rodriguez fight, yeah, he was doing good, and then he got hurt, and then there's a layoff. So to just assume he's going to come back as some reinvented version of himself or a peak version, he's fighting He's fighting in Mexico City against, you know, a, a former interim champion, a top three guy in the division. It's just, it's a very difficult fight to come back to. They're not doing him any favors saying, you know, here's a softish opponent, beat him, then we'll throw you into the fire. He's just going right back into the fire. Never left it, but just going right back into it. So again, it's a disadvantaged position for sure, but... I picked him against Yeah Rodriguez the first time. I think he matches up incredibly well with him. He's got solid striking. His jiu-jitsu is second to none. And even though his wrestling's not good enough to take down guys like Alexander Volkanovsky, it is, in fact, good enough to take down Yeah Rodriguez. And he did take him down. And he did land some good strikes. And he was doing good. And he looked like the rightful favorite. And he got hurt. So, yeah, I get it. It's a year and a half long layoff. You're coming back. Now you're the underdog. You were the favorite the first time around. Unfortunate injury. But you were the favorite because of your skills. Those skills didn't digress, I don't think. 33 is not super old. So as long as he comes back with that solid chin and that solid cardio and that ability to keep pace with Yair Rodriguez, he's going to present a lot of problems, both standing and on the ground. So don't mind that. Next thing is, is that Brian Ortega is a weird dude. Like, I was, I was a fan of him. Then he just, he makes some stupid comments and he, he became a recluse. But I'm going to give the guy props, right? He comes from a bit of a tough upbringing, very blue collar, you know, gang related stuff. Everybody knows the story becomes a contender, or becomes a jiu-jitsu guy, and gets to, like, the highest part. Gets really good at jiu-jitsu. Unbelievable good, uh, unbelievably good in a short period of time, because that's his focus, is jiu-jitsu. Jumps over to MMA, and it's like he's mostly just a jiu-jitsu guy. He had lost the first two rounds with, against Clay Guida. He had lost the first two rounds against Tiago Tavares. He lost the first two rounds against Renato Moicano, and he beat all three of those guys in the third round, because it's like he's learning on the fly. But after he got absolutely smoked by Max Holloway, he took a year and a half off. And I remember he did this interview where he's like, I had to cut out a bunch of friends from my friend circle. And I just, I moved in with my boxing coach and I just bought, did nothing but box for, for eight months, 10 months. The very next fight after the Max Holloway beating, he comes back with just a completely revamped boxing game, murders the Korean zombie, lands like 140 significant strikes, took him down three times, just like unbelievable version of him. And then gave Volkanovsky a go, a prime Volkanovsky a go. You know, it was looking good against Yair. And now, so, so most people are going to be afraid from this year and a half long layoff. I honestly believe Brian Ortega 
if he just focused on his skills, he could come back as a better version, if not the same version. The same version is going to be competitive. A better version wins this fight. Both versions, you're getting plus 130 underdog status on it. Dog or pass, I'll take the dog, Brian Ortega. Nice. All right, moving on down, we've got Daniel Zellhuber taking on Francisco Prado. Minus 260 for Zellhuber. Prado can be had for plus 220. Who you got? Yeah, so good fight, tough fight. Uh, it seems to me like Francisco Prado is a big power puncher, right? I mean, he needs to land those big shots, right? He's not exactly the best wrestler. You saw in his Jamie Malarkey fight, taken down three times, largely controlled. If you don't give him that ability to land that chopping overhand, right? If you don't stand directly in front of him, you can neutralize this guy. Not easily, but it's the path of least resistance. His last time out against Otman Azitar, Otman Azitar is also... A stand in front of you banger. It's just the way he fights. He's a little bit older now. He stands in front of Prado. Prado beats him to the punch and puts him down. This fight with Daniel Zellhuber, you know, you and I always talk about this cast iron Mexican toughness. And the thing with Zellhuber is that he's got a hell of a chin on him. He can take a punch. He's got good volume. And he's willing to stand there long enough to maybe take one to give you back two or three. That volume game will eventually overtake you. Looked awesome on the contender series. Foolishly enough, I thought the kid was a real deal. I bet him fairly heavy against Trey Ogden. He did, he did not show up against Trey Ogden. But in his two subsequent fights, Lando Venon in his last time out against Christos Giagos, you're seeing why they call him the golden boy. He's very young. He's been full-time in Las Vegas for a long, long time now. The skills are very much developing all across the map. And now that he's getting some confidence, some wins in the UFC, again, you're going to see a continuously better version of him every time he comes out. This matchup, in particular against Francisco Prado, if Prado nails him with that shot, I feel like Zellhuber just rolls with it. He can take a few of them, but the, the superior volume will be coming from Zellhuber. The superior range will be coming from Zellhuber. And Kid's actually got a pretty decent little ground game on him. Against that fight with Giagos, you saw his striking, but to land that Anaconda choke second round, very, very slick stuff. I think, again, in this transition of him making that progress, I think you see him use his volume, his speed, his length, maybe mix in a takedown and use some grappling as well. But Zellhuber should be the clear favorite which he is and uh i'm gonna be backing him uh watch it watching some of it back like i i think zell huber like i'm obviously super super young he's got insane like he's insanely big for the division what is he like six foot one with like a 77 inch reach it's got a lot of intangibles the the submission win against uh, our last time out there was impressive but like even in round one juggles rocks him Rocks him hard. The the kids Jogos is the a kids beast. the kid they keep complimenting on on being able to like maintain that reach, maintain that length. It's like he gets clipped. He's got he got clipped against Lucas Almeida. It's like I know we always joke about you know he's Mexican and the chin has held up. He hasn't even he hasn't got flat knocked down, but he's shown in multiple fights here. Like he kind of keeps that chin up. The striking defense is not optimal to be perfectly honest i think prado could cause him a lot of problems and i would not fault anyone including myself who's eyeballing it right now for taking a shot on prado ko1 13 to 1 because uh i mean i think if it comes down to this going to decision let's face it at the end of the day both of these guys are super young they're both improving every single fight does zell huber have Way more intangibles, unteachables, and the fact that he's super, super long, good technique. Um, uh, yeah, he's, he's got like they're both very, very good prospects, in my opinion, to be perfectly honest. I liked Prado before the Malarkey fight, I thought he showed a lot of heart, 
just being able to kind of hang in there uh, really, really short notice, basically like taking that fight just to be, you know, to get a spot on the roster and then came through and showed what he's actually usually about with the, uh, the first round knockout last time out. But I don't know. Zell Huber's kind of shown us a few times that like that chin is a little bit sketchy as far as I'm concerned. It may not be a chin, but it's just like his, he takes big shots and maybe they'll clean that up and, and he'll get even better at use, utilizing that reach. Like, at like 23 years old, like he has a lot of potential. Don't get me wrong. Um, I'm probably going to bet this right now, this Prado KO one plus 1300. Cause at one of the sharper books, they opened it at 1300 and it went down to 800 real quick. So I'm going to be jumping on that. I'll, I'll pick per for the purpose of a pick. I'll pick uh, Prado as well. But, uh, but yeah, I'm not going to be shocked if he loses on the money line. Don't even, I have no real intentions on touching the money line, to be perfectly honest. But that prop, him by KO, him by KO1, um, they have my attention. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Moving on down, we've got Raul, uh, Raul Rosas Jr. taking on Ricky Tercios. Raul Rosas is a minus 210 favorite. Tercios can be had for plus 180. Who you got? Yeah, I'm probably going to take a bath on this one. Just, you know, overplaying Rosas. And why would you want to bet this 19-year-old kid and, you know, goofy personality and still very green in a lot of ways. So, like, I, I, I could see Rosas definitely being the apple pie shitter for one Cody Saptic personally this weekend. But just like, yeah, dude, Styles make fights. And I think he's got a really good style to go out and beat Ricky Tercios. <clears throat> Again, when you look at him and just like how young he is, 19 years old, every time he fights, he's going to be vastly better than the last time. He's putting his skills together. I think him losing to Christian Rodriguez isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a reality check. You lose that undefeated record, which takes pressure off your shoulders and allows you to go to the drawing board and realize what you've got to do. He almost choked out Christian Rodriguez with a rear naked choke. And for the, for the record... Rodriguez is on a hell of a tear, man. He goes out and beats Cameron Simon his last time out, and now he's booked against Isaac Dolgarian. So, like, he's where he wants to be. He's fighting legitimate prospects. He's giving them a go. It's that that inexperience and that youthfulness is playing against him. Now, yes, still 19 years old. He's still going to be making mistakes, no doubt about it. But them giving him Ricky Tercios is almost uh, them trying to help him out. Rosas, yeah, okay, he caught Mitchell his last time out. But he's not a power puncher. He's a grappler, very much so. They call him Mexican Khabib. He wants to chain wrestle, wants to stick tight to the hips, and he wants to just rinse and repeat, get you up against the cage, peel you to the ground, take your back. It's what he does exceptionally well. Even in his loss, that's his position. That's where he usually finds himself, and that's where you're going to have trouble. I'm a little bit worried about him at altitude simply because, because he's young. He fights pedal to the metal. Like, he's going 100% all the time, whereas sometimes you need to pace yourself. Sometimes you need to relax. And so if Tercios, who is a wily veteran, a guy that can fight 15 minutes, a guy that will give you a go and give you a, a stern test, that guy doesn't go away and he's there for 15, I need Rosas to also be there for 15. But again, looking at Ricky Tercios, Paul, here's a guy that lost to Boston Salmon 
on the contender series, right? He usually gets to where he wants to be. That big fight can't quite get over the hump. UFC resides him. He fights Brady Heastand. Brady Heastand's like 22 years old when he fought him. He was also young. He's a wrestler half as good as Rosa's. And yet, yeah, he took him down six times, gave him a tough fight. His uh, last time out against Kevin Natividad, he's a massive favorite over Kevin Natividad. He's supposed to walk right through him. He gets dropped. He gave up seven takedowns to Kevin Natividad. So everyone that pretty much wants to take him down is going to take him down. I don't. I think Rosas Jr. is the same. He wants him down. He's going to take him down. The difference is, is those guys are looking to take you down, hold half guard, land some chopping elbows. Rosas is looking to take your back, backpack you, and control you. He gassed out doing it against Christian Rodriguez, but again, taking the valuable lesson from that fight, if he can just backpack Ricky Tercios and not gas out, he's not going anywhere, man. He'll get the takedowns when he wants them. He'll get his position when he wants them. It's whether he gasses out if Ricky's able to survive for the 15 minutes. So this is a good fight because it's going to give you some ring time. It's going to give you some experience, but it's a favorable matchup with you, right? So even if Ricky stuffs the takedowns and keeps it standing, he's not that big of a threat on the feet. He's got some nasty volume, sure, but Rosas has got some, I don't know, I can't even say he's got okay volume. He doesn't really throw that much. He just power handles you to the ground and then out grapples you. Again, I think the UFC knows what they're doing on a matchmaking perspective, and it's one that favors Rosas. So there's a ton of big favorites this weekend. Rosas is like a mid-level favorite, minus 270 range, compared to some of these minus 400, minus 500 type guys. So in some spots for parlays, he will juice it up. But he's 19 years old, dude. So that's that's what's causing me to not like want to put him at the top. He probably ends up on the second line, to be quite honest with you. But there's a there's a bit of a hesitancy to put him, you know, to put too much stock in him and too much faith in him because like I remember what I was doing at 19, and like you would not want it to have any faith in a 19 year old Cody. I don't know that I wanted a bunch of faith in Jay Leno's illegitimate Mexican love child, a thousand feet in the air, right? Ten thousand feet in the air. 10,000 feet in the air. It's a lot of feet. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. I mean, Ricky Tercios, the first two fights, obviously, 110, 110 against Boston Salmon, 100 significant strikes against Brady Heastand. Then 27 against Eamon Zahabi. Zahabi does slow down the the pace of a fight. But it's just like, I don't know. You listen to this guy on an interview, and it sounds like he's on ayahuasca. Like, guy's a lunatic. And at the end of the day, what this fight really comes down to is that he couldn't stuff a Thanksgiving turkey, let alone a takedown from Raul Rosas Jr. He got taken down seven times by Kevin Natividad. He got taken down six times by Brady Highstand. Raul Rosas will get the takedowns early and often, and... I mean, Tercios hasn't really been subbed, so probably it'll be kind of similar, I think, for Raul Rosas. Maybe it goes to the full the full decision. Terrence Mitchell is a guy that you get out of there early. You know, that's just the way the Terrence Mitchell experience is. But I don't know. It could be one of those types of situations where just so, so much positional dominance, so much strength advantage, he kind of pounds away, and it's kind of like a mercy stoppage type of thing. Um, but yeah, I think the safer approach is just to take Raul Rosas Jr. Plus 210, I actually don't even think it's all that crazy. He's going to get takedowns. And when he gets those takedowns, he's going to control significant portions of this fight in front of his hometown crowd or his home country crowd. I don't, we'll, we'll see how much they love him out there. I don't, I don't know. Like I know the American public, not 
not the biggest fan. They kind of think he's an annoying, you know, annoying kid, a little bit too cocky, yada, yada, yada. He's probably a star down there, though. I guess we'll find out. But, yeah, no, honestly, man, I think he's a he's a fine parlay piece this week. The, the takedown advantage should just be so crystal clear for him in this fight. Uh, we got Yasmin Origi taking on Sam Page, Sam Hughes. Minus 520 for Warigi, plus 400 for Sam Page. Here's the thing about this fight, Code. I think the one thing about Warigi that we kind of saw is that, like, eh, durability may be a bit of a question mark. I mean, Denise Gomes absolutely lit her up, got her out of there. 17 significant strikes in, like, 20 seconds. Just went, like, absolute assault rifle on her, got her out of there really quick. Um, the durability may not be great. Takedown defense... It could be a little bit of a question. I don't know. Yasmin Lucindo is like the only person who really tried. She tried twice in round two um, of their fight, and she was stuffed both times. There is probably a path for Sam Page, but Sam Page can't bust a great. And I feel like that's probably, until further notice, until we, I guess, get a little bit more information about Warigi. I feel like that may be the only path is like straw weight knockouts against her. Uh, the other skills all seem to be there for her. She should have a massive advantage on the feet. I mean, I feel like if you were going to bet Sam Page, unless you really think that there's a massive wrestling disparity here, I would probably play the safer approach. You're not, you know, if she, if, it, if the fight starts and Sam Page gets a takedown immediately you're not getting the 400 anymore but maybe you got like plus 300 when she's like hanging out in guard um if you wanted to go down that route i just don't really have the answer for like is she going to be able to get the takedowns i will take the coward's way out i will take yasmin wariki as a pick here i think this is a fight that i'm more interested in a live betting perspective though what about you yeah, I I don't know, man. Like, I think I might take Sam Hughes. Oh, if for baby. no other reason than the price tag is mm. just ridiculous, Paul. Pat Mayo yes. would be the first one to tell you this one fits the the CF dot model to a T, right? It's a, There's a lot of variables. It's a relatively close fight when you think about it. And, yes, Sam Hughes has a path to victory, and this is a crazy price tag. Let me tell you something about Sam Hughes, okay? Sam Hughes, three and four in the UFC, okay? Sam Hughes, seven-fight UFC veteran. All seven fights, she's been the betting underdog, and yet she's won three of them. But keep this in mind. She debuts against Tisha Torres, who's a former title, like, not a title challenger, but a top five girl. But anyways, debut against Tisha Torres. She's a plus 440 underdog. Whoa, unheard of. Second fight in the UFC against Loma Lugbume. She's a plus 310 underdog. Who's matchmaking for this poor girl? But they give her a third fight against Luana Pinero, and she's a plus 340 underdog. Goes 0-3 to start her three UFC fights as a plus 440, a plus 315, and a plus 340. Poor girl. And they keep her on the roster. Book her against Estella Nunes as a plus 185, and she got her first win. Booked her against Elise Reed as a plus 125, she gets her second win. Piero Rodriguez, she's a plus 145 underdog, loses that one. And then her last time winning against Jacqueline Amory, a plus 220 underdog. And she cashes the tickets. But now all of a sudden, she's gotten away from this 0-3 start. She's 3-1 and in her last four fights. And she's cashed three tickets as the underdog. So the thing with Sam Hughes is that she's pretty durable. Like, the debut against Tisha Torres, that's in the rearview mirror. Since then, she's fairly gritty. And she was never a great wrestler, but she's, implor- she's using a lot more uh, wrestling, you know, heavy tactics. 
pressing your opponents against up the cage, fighting within the clinch, leaning on them, and just outlasting them. Elise Reed, you know, she can't wrestle for nothing, so that was not a great example. Estella Nunes is a good example. Jacqueline Amorim is a good example. They're actually very talented, but they're kind of one-round fighters. And the longer that you can drag them into those murky waters and you can dirty this fight up, you can fight your way into it. Sam Hughes can strike. She comes from that striking background, but it's that she's been using a lot more wrestling lately, getting a lot more comfortable. 31 years old, physically coming into her prime, coming off a big win. Like I said, 3-1 and one over her last four fights. I think that there's enough momentum to suggest that she's coming into this fight motivated to go out there and get the win. She has the skill to maybe make this a grinding affair, maybe turn this into a bog, maybe make this a 15-minute type fight, and then have some success. Yergui, meanwhile, because she's the huge favorite, so what exactly makes her that huge favorite? I'm not so sure. Like, Yasmin Lucindo... It's not a giant win. And she lands 86 significant strikes. She looked like a volume machine. But for 115-pound women, 86 significant strikes isn't exactly a volume machine. It's kind of par for the course. Her fight with Estella Nunes, she got dropped. She got rocked early. And then, as you mentioned last time out against Denise Gomez, she got knocked out. But you've not really seen her excel outside of that, you know, that first fight maybe against Lucindo, really excel in these hard 15-minute type fights. You've not seen an opponent take her down. You've not seen an opponent, you know, pose that big threat. And Sam's not exactly the big power puncher that I think I would want if I was going to take that full fade of the big favorite. I would want somebody that might clip her because, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, there's question marks there about that chin and about that durability. Sam Hughes doesn't exactly fit that bill, but her ability to fight a competitive 15 minutes and keep it a relatively close fight, have some spots, have some moments, maybe rock her, maybe tire her out, Maybe allow the pressure to get to her. Maybe just use a veteran performance. Seven fights in the UFC, you know? Like, start start to put it to good use. So, if this thing was minus 240, Yergui, if it was minus, like, 300, I don't know, even then, man. Like, I just, I wouldn't want to pay 3-1, to one, and this is worse than 3-1. to one. So, uh, that's a no-moss. It's no-moss for me. Yeah, that's fair. No, no but the, the, the one thing I will say is, okay, the Lucindo is the only person who shot any takedowns on her, right? Lucindo has since went out and against Brogan Walker, got four takedowns. She took down Pollyanna Vienna, and on top of that, was able to submit her, took her down twice, and then in round two, got an arm tri arm and triangle uh, on her. So I don't know. Maybe maybe Lucindo's takedowns are pretty solid, and against Warrigi, she wasn't really able to get those going. Now, that's that's really where my like where the cloudiness because like the worst case scenario is Sam tries to shoot takedowns and just, like, she gets stuffed. It's like, she's going to get chewed up on the feet. Like, I don't think it's remotely competitive if this is a 15-minute uh, striking affair between these two. That would be my hesitation to pull the trigger. You know me. I want to pull the trigger <laughs> on a right. plus 400 female underdog, but uh, I don't know if I can pull the trigger. We'll see where the line goes. Maybe I'll... Maybe I'll FOMO into it. I mean, she's she's 24 years old, right? And she's from Mexico, who's not a country known for their wrestling. So yeah, I, I don't know. I could be I could be way off on this one. But but what suggests that she is is yeah, you're right. Lucindo's maybe not terrible offensive no. wrestler, but I don't know. We'll tell. It's just the price. It's more of a price, price thing more than anything else. I ain't yeah, bet that's that's I ain't where I'm betting I get the minus five twenty, I'll tell you that much, buddy. <laughs> I ain't betting that. All right, we got uh, Manuel Torres taking on Chris Duncan. Torres is a minus-190 favorite. 
Duncan can be had for plus 165. Who you got? So this is another one. I, I think I could be talked into maybe an underdog pick on Chris Duncan. Uh, it's going to be dirty, and it might blow up straight in your face like a hand grenade. But I think he's got a shot. Manuel Torres, I like him. Like him because he's an offensive dynamo. Like him because he comes to just absolutely decapitate you. And decapitate you, he generally does. The vast majority of his wins are by first-round finish. Uh, his last time out against Nicholas Moda, just the filthiest elbow. But, you know, a knockout, sub-two minutes. His fight with Frank Camacho. Call Frank Camacho a little long in the tooth or not. Knocking him out in less than three and a half minutes, first round. Solid stuff. Colton England, not exactly good, but still, you see, if you're not on his level and you have durability issues and you're hittable, you've got problems, man, because he finds ways to sneak through. He carries a ton of power, and he's one of these Mexican brawler types where he, he's down to throw down. He's down to stand in front of you and just feed off the energy of the crowd. So you need to be able to fight that smart fight. The, the counter to that, it's like, oh, great, he's a first-round finisher and he's got dynamo power, and, like, what's the problem? The problem is... I'm not entirely sure he's able to keep it going, even though he's Mexican and Mexico is not Mexico City, right? This is a part of Mexico that has altitude. So I'm not fully convinced that every single Mexican fighter on the card is going to be ready for it. There's going to be a lot of fatigue from these other guys. This is a first round finisher. He finishes guys in the first round. If he gets out of the second round, naturally, I would assume he's tired. Naturally, I would assume at altitude, he's going to be even more tired. So he needs to get a quick finish of Chris Duncan. Beyond that, he's got two career losses. Carlos Calvao, who's like, you know, legend of the region. But it's a, it's a first-round knee bar, a minute 23. Two fights prior against Mahatma Garcia, who was 9 and 8 at the time. It's a first-round heel hook in 59 seconds. So two things. You look at tape on him. He's not a great grappler. Like, he's getting subbed by leg locks in, in, a, minute, in a minute off these guys. Now, when you stand in front of him and you allow him to butcher you with elbows, he knocks you out. But if you want to grapple with him, he's not shown, at least on tape, he's not proven that his grappling's all that good. He hasn't proven that his cardio is all that good. Even the split decision loss to Enrique Gonzalez, he's gassed the longer the fight goes because he's an offensive dynamo, because he's putting pressure on guys, because he's swinging for the fences. So... As much as a guy like this can win and does have that, there's risk reward. You know, he's on a winning streak. He's taking these guys out. He's cashing these $50,000 bonuses. It's all good stuff. Somebody eventually is going to take advantage of him. Now, why he can win this Chris Duncan fight? Yeah, he's got a puncher's chance against anybody, but Duncan is hittable, man. Duncan stands not right in front of you, but he's a guy that has a little bit leaky boxing defense, doesn't exactly keep his hands the best position uh, doesn't move his head off the center line a whole lot and kind of comes on a linear line. So he's there to get hit. You saw his fight with Vlachislav Borshev on the contender series. If I'm not mistaken, he was, uh, I guess, slight favorite, but he was the favorite over Borshev. And you saw that he's there to hit play rock and sock and robots with them. Only thing is Slava Claus hits like an absolute tank. And every time Slava hits him, it does some serious impact, whereas his return far is not getting that same respect. Eventually, he melts over in the second round. Since then, it's not like he's done anything you know, to super wow you. This is more just like speculation than anything else. But he moved down to American Top Team and started putting in some solid time with Matt Brown or Mike, Mike Brown, sorry, and just like a bunch of the solid guys at American Top Team. Puts in the work. Apparently, he's just... Big-time work ethic, shows up at the gym every day, puts that grind in, puts that grind in. And then, to be honest with you, his last two fights, Omar Morales and this Yanel Ashmus, he's been wrestling. He's been wrestling way more. Five mm -hmm. takedowns over Morales, two takedowns over Ashmus. Ashmus, he looked pretty fluid, too. 85 significant strikes landed, you know, cardio checked up, 
fight IQ actually looked a lot better. He wasn't necessarily willing to just stand and engage with a guy that was a fairly one-dimensional brawler. He fought a much better game plan. And so this in lies why he would be maybe a decent underpick and worth taking this week against Manuel Torres, is if he gets in a gunfight, he probably gets curled over, if we're being honest with you. But if he comes in with his game plan of allow this guy to come forward, time it, take him down, make him carry your weight, make him you know feel that grind, let the crowd noise get to him, let the pressure get to him, let the lights and the heat, and it's possible that this guy's a one-round fighter to begin with, and his submission game's not very good, no. and you got a guy that's probably going to end up on top of him for long periods of time out of a hell of a camp with a hell of a game plan. And if he just follows what Mike Thomas Brown, the great Mike Thomas Brown, tells him, he has the skills to put his best foot forward and actually spring the upset. So I think dog number two, I'm going to go with Chris Duncan. But this is one of those underdog picks that sometimes you you pick an underdog and they fight a really tough fight and it's a close decision and people pat you on the back like, oh, you got it wrong, but I saw where you were coming from. And sometimes your guy gets melted in the first round. It's the same. I'm going for something. It's either going to work or I'm going to look bad because my losing condition here is getting melted in the first three minutes. My winning condition is take this guy down, grind him, and hit that plus 190 plus ta- uh, price tag. So uh, dog number two for me, I'll take Duncan. I don't hate it. I don't hate it at all. The only thing that would make me like Duncan a little bit more of it is if he had some sort of like decent submission game. I know he's had, he has a couple of like submissions against absolute nobodies early on in his yeah. career, but like it's not quite there. But the fact that he's got the takedowns, I mean, the Ashmoos fight, was just like a great performance by him all all the way around. He really Pretty ramped best. it up too early on. He's like, "This is when this guy's the most dangerous." Um, you know, the, his significant strike count in that round one was nineteen significant strikes. He still made sure that he didn't get hit. He, he only absorbed you know nine out of twenty eight. So it's like he minded his p's and q's early, and then every single round, twenty six significant strikes in round two, forty significant strikes in round through three. Kind of let the fight come to him. Didn't get into a gunfight early. The chin could be an issue. He absolutely, 100%, could get melted in this spot. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he's got at ATT with, with that camp. I mean, it doesn't seem like that bad of a spot all the way around. They'll have him ready for altitude. Like, I know he trains in Florida. It's like, obviously. But it's like, he's shown that it's like he has a propensity to since at least going to that that camp to ramp the volume up the later the fight goes when you're supposed to be more tired. So, I don't know. Everything's kind of pointing upwards for him. The Ashmoos obviously has power and wasn't able to really do much with his strikes that he did land. I mean, Omar Morales can't really bust a grape. Um, so that, I wouldn't read too, too much into it. It's going to be, it's going to, yeah, make that fight ugly early. Don't need some sort of like helicopter kick or like spinning back elbow or something like that. It's like it's definitely on the table. MMA is gonna MMA, but I'm with you. Duncan plus one sixty five is a fine underdog pick as far as I'm concerned. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, 
for the ones who get it done. We got your boy, Rowney Barcelos, taking on Christian Quinones. Rowney Barcelos is a minus 200 favorite. Quinones can be had for plus 170. Who do you like? I got to go with my boy, Rowney Barcelos. Normally, because I'm a big Rowney Barcelos you know, fanboy, and I don't love the fight, but I love Rowney. But in this case, I actually do really like the fight, and I like Rowney. He, he's obviously on the back nine. He's obviously regressing. His boxing's not as sharp as it used to be. His cardio's not as tight as it used to be. His wrestling's not you know, nearly as you know, fluent as it used to be. Father Time's kicking his ass. The thing is, is that he's still got a legitimate skill set and that could be applied against these weaker, low-level guys. If you look at Roni, he used to fight lower-level guys and kill them. I mean, we're talking Carlos Huation. We're talking Chris Gutierrez. Before Chris Gutierrez got good, I guess. Uh, you know, Khalid Taha, Trevin Jones. can beat those guys. It's Timor Valia, Victor Henry, Umar Nurmagomedov, Kyler Phillips. Clearly, he's not going to be able to get over that, you know, top 10, you know, upper echelon, be considered a fringe contender. He's just going to be one of these tough top 15 type guys that's going to be a gatekeeper. He's going to fall into the gatekeeper type position. When I look at Christian Quinones, it's almost like, you know, he could potentially be a fraud. He had fought a lot of salty guys on his way up, you know, guys on the regional scene that maybe were unheard of or just didn't have that level of experience. But he's been finished in all of his fights. This Jose Rallas Soto fight, the guy was 2-2. Two and two. He knocked him out. Christian Souza, he knocked him out. Victor Madrigal choked him out. And then his last time out against Mr. Perfect Kyoho Hang, he actually got taken down, knocked down, and re-naked choked. So that was the trifecta. His chin's not that good. You and I talk about these cast iron Mexicans with his ability to take damage. But just like, you know, every stereotype, it's just a stereotype. It doesn't fit everybody. Some people genuinely can't take a punch. Quinones might be in the category of Mexicans who cannot take a punch. Beyond that, his takedown defense is really not all that good. His grappling's really not all that good. And he's got a bad habit of giving up his back. Rowney's not as sharp as he used to be, but in terms of his technical boxing, he's way sharper in the pocket than Quinones. He's got, I wouldn't say maybe the faster hands, but he's, he's got good counter-punching abilities. Quinones throws out a long, lazy jab. Barcelos is going to counter it over the top. If he hits him clean, he's putting him down. Even if he doesn't hit him clean and put him down, the wrestling's still there, man. Seven-time member of the Brazilian national wrestling team. 100% that single leg's going to be on display. He's going to rip him to the ground. Once he rips him to the ground, Quinones tends to give up his back, and Rowney loves to take the back. You know, beat Saeed Nurmagomedov. The guy's got legitimate skills when he puts them to his best use. It's just fighting the best guys in the world is splitting hairs. Like, one mistake is going to cost you. Against Quinones, I think he can make a handful of mistakes and probably still win the fight. So, yeah, I like this spot for Rowney, and I can't put him on the top line because he's lost my... He's my boy. He's lost my faith of putting, like, everything all in on him. Can't do that anymore. 100% I'm playing him. And again, with Quinones, it's like, what's his big win? Khalid Taha? Rowney killed that guy too. Uh, What's his other big win? I don't know. Guys on the UWEC, Mexican regional scene, that never broke on to any other scene after that. Like, Maybe I'm being too harsh. He's 27. You know, he's got a he's got a long jab on him. Maybe Rowney is shot to bits and just doesn't got it in him anymore. But I I would honestly still take a shot to bits Rowney Barcelos than the best version I've seen yet of uh of this kid Christian Quinones. So bias aside, you know, lo- love love affair aside, I think Rowney Barcelos is the, the better play. Yeah, Quinones seems pretty KO robust here. I mean. 
Here's a fight that like KOing Rowney would be a hell of a task. Like yeah, Umar yeah. and those guys made Yeah, but... Umar who's arguably the best guy in the in the division. I mean, Who nobody, else? nobody yeah. want nobody wants to fight him. No, but I'm saying like that <laughs> but like here's a here's a an example of a fight that like, you know, people are like, "Oh, you know, Rowney Rowney could KO him or like, you know, Trevin Jones has that death touch." Yeah? He, he, like he basically completely neutralized Trevin Jones in that entire fight. Like, it was really not competitive whatsoever. It was able to take him down when he wanted to take him down. Um, I mean, one on significant strikes, 73 to 11. Um, Rowney's a little bit long in the tooth, but all of the skills are there. I'd like to see him mix in the wrestling, um, just at least early in the fight, just to kind of, you know, take that the riskiest time of this fight. Uh, out of out of the kid's hands, but I'm with you. R- Rowney seems like a fine parlay piece at minus 200 to me. Uh, we got Machus Mandanka taking on Jesus Aguilar. Minus 150 for Mandanka, plus 130 for Aguilar. I mean, I mean, you can't see the graphic right now, but if this Machus Mandanka didn't have like, you know, fancy blue hair, you know, and like kind of mm-hmm. cool tattoos. I mean, what has this guy done to be justified as a favorite? I know Jesus Aguilar, like, historically doesn't really have much power. He did knock out Shannon Ross, but Cody, you could knock out Shannon Ross uh, if you were just allowed to, like, line up an overhand right. I have a lot of faith. Um, Yeah, like, I mean, the performance last time out was absolutely abysmal. I don't know. I think this guy's an absolute goof. Why would we bet him as a favorite literally against anybody at this point? Uh, Aguilar, for me. What about you? Yeah, so Mendonca's actually a bit of a, he's a bit of a wild card. You know, there's what, what do you know about him? So one, he's 25 years old. He's still super young. Again, we always go back to the whole, a guy that should be making improvements, but he's one of Charles Oliveira, Oliveira's boys. Like, he's a straight-up teammate. Why his hair's blue and not blonde? I don't know. Maybe he didn't want to, you know, copy Charles's thing, but he he very much wants to be like a poor man's Charles Oliveira. He wants to just be an offensive dynamo, put heavy pressure on you, you know, long rangey, explosive striking, uh, get it eventually close up that distance, grab a hold of his opponents, peel them to the ground, overpower them. What he lacks up in technique, he makes up in raw aggression and just attack submissions, attack, attack, attack. That's what he wants to do. I'll be honest with you. When he came on the contender series against Ashiak Ajim, he just folds the guy in 48 seconds. He's an offensive powerhouse. They book him against Javid Basharat. He looked pretty good against Javid Basharat. Taking on an incredible opponent. He landed two takedowns. Yeah, he got tripled up on the strike, significant strike department, but it looks like he is a physically strong guy who's still young, needs time to mature, but the takedowns are going to be there for him. And again, he's going to be able to just go out there and outmuscle guys and put them in bad spots. So his fight with Nate Maness, it's crazy. He goes 15 full minutes with Javid Basharat and takes him down two times. Very ultra impressive. Okay. Does this all, Paul, at 135 pounds. Drops down to 125 against Nate Maness. He, he just, every, every indication would be a better version of him. And I have no idea what he was thinking. But his entire game plan was grab this guy's leg and hold on to it at all costs. And even though Nate Maness is punching him in the head 
And even though he's clearly not defending himself, and even though the leg lock is clearly not working, the first three of them have not materialized. Just he had zero ability for his brain to just connect the dots and be like, bail, bail on this game plan. No, no. He just sat there and allowed himself to get punched in the face until the referee finally said, I'm sick of seeing you get punched in the face while holding on to Nate's leg. And that was it. He gets knocked out tail end of the first round with just the world's worst game plan. Like at least Husam Al-Paharaz could break a guy's leg. At least Ryan Hall could use it to scramble into a new position. Like Mendonca just looks so lost, man. So lost. And so here's a guy that actually looked decent on short notice against a good opponent in Javid Vashra at 135 pounds who looks completely lost and just not with it in his second fight against Nate Maness at 125. Two fighters, man. That's why it's hard to get a, a read on these guys all the time. But in Mandonka's case, it's like I wouldn't want to put any stock. I think he's got skills. And I think fought, fighting the right game plan could yield him some success. But I got no confidence and no faith that he's actually going to go there and do that. And for that reason, I really can't get behind him. Jesus Aguilar, meanwhile, is not like the sexiest play going. Uh, short underdog here. One thing I will give him that I like about this guy is that he's one of your I can fight for 15 minutes and I ain't going nowhere type of Mexican fighters. He's got legitimate wins over Edgar Chárez, who we're going to talk about a little bit later, but he choked Edgar Chárez out with a guillotine choke in the fifth round of a title fight in Mexico. Fifth round, never quits coming, catches him in a nasty guillotine choke, solid. He follows that up beating Jamie Alvarez. Jamie Alvarez is one of the original flyweights out of American Top Team, a little bit older now. Solid guy, fought in the contender series, been around the block more than a few times. He catches Jamie Alvarez with a guillotine choke, second round, beats Christian Barraza by unanimous decision, beats this Arison Ferreira on the contender series, another guillotine choke, obviously is his favorite move, in the third round. These are all late finishes. Tatsuya Tyra is a beast. Clearly he can't grapple with Tyra, he gets caught in triangle armbar. And then Shannon Ross can't take a punch. So, like, you don't, what, what do you know? He, he landed a punch 17 seconds in. I don't know. What I do know is the grappling, is the cardio. And I think that makes sense is that Mendonca wants to get this fight to the ground. He tried against Javid. He tried against Nate Maness. It's what he'll want to do here, too. It's possible in the Nate Maness fight that he had a bad weight cut because he looked like he had some cardio against uh, Bashar at 135, no cardio against Maness at 125. So, again, now you're dropping down again with a tough weight cut going to Mexico City to take on the local guy who he's got cardio for days. He'd be choking guys out 25 minutes into a fight. He's still choking guys out. He's got cardio for days and a pretty decent submission game. If Mendonca doesn't catch him early, I'm not 100% sure he does. This this looks like a prime spot for Jesus Aguilar just to tire him out or just fend off the submission attempts, end up on top, make him carry your weight, tire him out and then put that beating on him. So good live betting opportunity here for Jesus Aguilar in that he may lose the first round. He may get overpowered to the ground. He needs to survive that initial onslaught. If he does, he's live underdog. So short underdog right now, probably a better price after the first round. In both scenarios, I'll take I'll take the short price here and make him underdog number three for the card. I will say, yeah, there's actually... The, the plus 130 that's like on the board doesn't even really exist. Like, you know, updated the odds right before we started the show. It's like other people are seeing the kind of the same thing. It's like clearly the more like dangerous guy is going to be Mendonca. But like if he doesn't get him out of there, doesn't, you know, land something absolute, absolutely enormous or find uh, a, a sneaky submission, seems like it's going to be a, 
you know, a grindy affair. Grindy affair would favor Jesus Aguilar. And we got a Brazilian fighting a Mexican-American. I have to imagine, you know, the crowd will, you know, side with the guy named Jesus Aguilar, even if he is from, like, the U.S. Yeah. He's born in Mexico. Is he born in Mexico? But he's, I, I think he's, like, he doesn't really seem like Mexican-Mexican, right? Like I mean, his, his name's Jesus Aguilar. How much more Mexican would you want to be? But, like, you know, he's not, like... You know, he speaks English. I believe he grew up stateside, didn't he? I, yeah, California. I'm, no, no, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. He's okay. Mexican-American, but but I think, like, his birthplace is Mexico. And so that's why people people be like, oh, man, you're Croatian-Canadian. It's like, I'm going to shoot it to you straight here, dog. I've never been to Croatia. I'm born in Canada. My parents are born in Canada. I'm Canadian, right? Like, you got roots and you got heritage and you got ancestry, but... I myself am Canadian. I don't know what else I could tell you. In this case, it's like, yeah, Mexican American. He lives in 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 uh, the United States. He probably grew up in the United States. Born in Mexico, that makes him Mexican. And I'm sure his parents are also born in Mexican or in Mexico. So seems pretty straight up. But what I noticed about the Canada card is that even though you're in Canada and it's Canadians, the guys that are judging the fights is still Saul D'Amato. It's it's still Chris Lee. Oh, yeah, it's still just the bums from Vegas or California or wherever. They they just they they send them on assignments to these places. So like you might get one local judge sprinkled in with two notoriously bad judges. It takes home cooking off the table. And even if it's like, oh, you know, crazy crowds behind you, every time the Canadian lands, the place goes nuts. They don't care, dude. How did Siri City lose that fight to Ramon Tavares? The guy missed weight by five pounds, and City outlanded him two to one in the second and third round with a crazy crowd. They don't care. They don't care. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to not play the hometown cooking angle, but I'm glad I have the local guy. Just in case that angle is on the table, I'm going to be part of it. I can't, I can't rely on it anymore, Paul Shaughnessy. Few years back, pfft, made money just betting the local guys in these cards and waiting for the bad decision. Nowadays, you just don't seem to get those same bounces. Because now they have bad decisions everywhere. It's everywhere. They everywhere. spread the wealth around, you know. Oh, yeah. but yeah, home cooking doesn't. F- I would say, eh, you never know. I would say, like, in fairness, a lot of these cards too. It's like. You know, because of COVID and stuff, there was, like, a lot of cards, particularly the ones at the Apex. Maybe that's, like, blinding us a little bit. You don't really have crowds and, and that type of influence. Maybe it's a little bit harder. I don't know. I don't have any of the any numbers or math. It's just I'm going straight with my feelings on this yes. one. I don't know if home cooking's completely dead, but, but yeah, I, don't, I, I feel like in the U.K., there could be an advantage in some spots there. Um. I don't know. It's nonsense. Anyway, let's move on. We've got another rematch. A fight that's uh, been booked a third time here. Uh, Shirez taking on Lacerda. Shirez is a minus 360 favorite. Lacerda can be had for plus 285. I mean, me and you were actually watching UFC Noche uh, when we were at your your cottage. Uh, We were together. Me, you, Pogi, Rob. The actual Pogi Rub, the namesake of the Pogi Rub parlay, the PRP, for all the people who ask all the time, what does PRP mean? It's the Pogi Rub parlay. Rob asked for it and then bought his dad a car um, one time. Good times. Pretty sweet. Pretty sweet. 
Um, I mean, that was a ridiculous, it was a ridiculous stoppage, right? Or it was a ridiculous ruling as far as I'm concerned. Like it kind of, it looked like Lacerda tapped. Somehow he got, you know, the, the powers that be to kind of agree with them. So they were like, all right, no contest. We'll run this thing back, run it back. And then Lacerda pulls out with an injury and they're like, you're not getting off of this one, bro. Now you're, we're flying you out to Mexico City. You're fighting this guy in his home country. I mean, Lacerda seems like a one-trick pony. Shirez seems pretty durable. Shirez seems to have some sort of grappling advantage over him here. It's hard for me to pull the trigger on Daniel, Daniel Lacerda, to be perfectly honest. But with the numbers the way it is, I really don't see too much like value hashtag, or like meat on the bone here. The under is absolutely nuked to like minus two fifteen to the under one and a half. Like, I don't really know how to approach this one from a betting perspective, but I don't know. I don't think Lacerda typically, outside of some of his performance, I mean, I guess the Shiras fight, he was kind of like minding his P's and Q's, but like the only reason why he's kind of hung around this long is that all of his fights have been absolutely nuts. So, um, I think yeah, I think Shiraz. I think most people in the UFC is a bad or a bad uh, or a bad fight for him. He hasn't really shown me much reason to to back him with my money. So I'll, I'll go. I'll back Shiraz from a for a pick, but I don't know what to do with it from a betting perspective. What about you? Yeah, it's getting tougher and tougher because Shiraz love Shiraz in this in this matchup. Love Shiraz. First time he fought Lacerda, it was like an I wasn't even money fight, but. I loved him in the first matchup. Point being that Lacerda, all of his fights, first round finish, first round finish, first round finish, first round finish. This guy is fast. He is legitimately fast. He makes guys that are fast look slow. He's got speed. Unfortunately, it's like he's moving in such quick motion that he just gasses himself out. Not only does he gas himself out, I don't think he particularly has much of a heart, for being honest with you, but he's got about three minutes. He will throw a spinning wheel kick. He can absolutely knock your head off. If he does not take you out in the early two, three minutes, he completely falls apart. Now, keep in mind, this is a guy that Jeff Molina beats him 46 seconds into the second round. Has that first round. Soon as this time for round two, this is uncharted territories for him because he never fights beyond a round. And Jeff Molina takes him less than a minute into the round. Francisco Figueredo. You may have heard the last name Figueredo. Yeah, this is his untalented brother. Did I mention the untalented part? Because he's very much untalented. Yeah, first round knee bar, like a minute 17 into the round. So now this guy, yeah, geez, he can't really take a punch. Can't really sustain any type of offense. His grappling's really not all that good either. Gets Victor Altamirano, who we'll talk about a little bit later. Altamirano is a generalist. He doesn't excel in any one area. He's not great in any one area, but he's there. He's tough. He wants to fight. And he's a guy that could fight for longer than three minutes. So when this fight goes longer than three minutes... Altamirano takes him down, crown and pounds him out. He's having no success. The UFC gives him a fourth fight. Why? Nobody knows. CJ Vergara. And wouldn't you know it, he actually looked a little bit better against CJ Vergara. Made it four minutes into the second round. Longest he's been. Pretty solid stuff. But ultimately, same thing. He tires out. Vergara is one of these, not the most talented guys, but junkyard dog, man. Puts pressure on you, comes forward. Those type of guys are going to yield tons of success against Lacerda, who's a front runner and is, is not going to be there at the tail end of the second round. So again, it's another spot. He's now 0-4 in the UFC. Who go, You sign a four-fight entry-level deal. 
So he would have lost all four fights on his deal and somehow got re-signed and fights Edgar Chavez. To me, that's craziness. But the first time he fought Edgar Chavez, he was a plus 185 underdog. The second time he got booked for to fight Edgar Chavez, he was a plus 225 underdog. And now this time he's a plus 280 underdog. So people are realizing the same thing. He's just not good. He's the kind of guy that would look real good in Shudo Brazil. Or like the kind of guy that could like beat a lower level guy in like spectacular fashion on a dirty prelim somewhere. But like there's no actual sustainability there. And can he win this fight? Yeah, he could win this fight. But his win condition is he needs to win this fight almost right away. Now keep in mind the first time, the only fought time he fought Edgar Chavez, he did take Chavez down right off the get-go. He mm -hmm. looks fast as he always does. He closes the distance. He gets a hold of Chavez. He throws him to the ground. He had a good start. The takedown was relatively effortless. But it was effortless because... This dude's physically strong for the first three minutes. Yeah, he throws you to the ground. As soon as the fight hit the ground, you knew he's going to have to get something right away or he's just going to gas himself. And the longer that fight progresses, all of a sudden, Charez turns the tables. All of a sudden, Charez is the one landing punches. All of a sudden, Charez grabs a submission. And I, I, I totally thought he tapped. You and me and Pogi Rob were all oh, high tapped. five and celebrating our... Yeah, and it's just like, no, 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 no. And now here's a guy that should be 0-5 in the UFC. Not only should he be 0-5 in the UFC, but he also canceled a fight with Vinicius Salvador after missing weight by four pounds and getting sick at the weigh-ins and canceled his last fight against Edgar Chavez the day before the weigh-ins after he also got sick. He's not even a flyweight. He can't cut weight. He has no cardio. Now you're sending him to Mexico City of all places... Like, dog, none of this is getting any better for him. As I say that, I'll put Charaz on the top ticket and he'll eat a flying <laughs> knee or something stupid because it's the game we play. But, like, I, there's there's honestly very little redeeming quality to Lacerda other than, yeah, dude, he'll give you a hard two and a half, three minutes, come at you, you know, try to do the damn thing to the best of his abilities, but... I got Charez. And last thing last thing I got to say is if it sounds like I'm a little bit salty, I'll tell you why I'm a little bit salty. The last time he was supposed to fight Charez was when we hit the PRP last year. And it was a 12-fight card. It turned to an 11-fight card. And we went 11 for 11. And I smoked the biggest ticket of the year, clearly. But had they just fought, had Lacerda just manned up and showed up, Charez would have kicked his ass back then. It would have been a 12-fight ticket. And even though he was like a plus or a minus 240, you know how 11 fight parlay tickets work that minus 240 would have like tripled it and cody would be on an island somewhere right now but he's not he's not because lacerda's tum tum hurt and he couldn't handle the pressure well now it's charez's chance to get one back over and i hope he does yeah now now you're just stuck with me breaking down the same damn fight again Right. On a shitty webcam in 720p. Oh, what, what does the world come to? Like, I could go out and buy better technology. I'm so lazy. But had I won the 12-fight PRP ticket, I could have had an assistant who could have overcome my laziness and set it up for me. So, dumbs to break, Paul. I'll just have to do it this week instead. Ah, goddamn Lacerda. If Lacerda showed up, Cody would have good internet. Think about that. <laughs> Anytime no, where I live, you've actually been pretty you good. Want today. Land, you've been you pretty good. You've been internet. pretty good in general today, to be perfectly right, honest. Uh, no, no complaints from from here. Um, but yeah, it's like if you ever see, I've seen actually people actually complain. They're like, "Why is producer Megan slowing down his like audio and speeding it back up?" It's just like I don't. You've never so seen. <laughs> you've never seen somebody lag 
before. Like I, I, I've seen that actually before. Like producer Megan take catching strays from people who. I mean, I would love to live where you live because obviously nobody ever has an internet issue by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, it's all Daniel Lacerda's fault. Cody would have, you know, streamlined. He'd, yeah, I don't know. He'd live at the damn internet company. He'd buy the damn internet company if uh, if he just showed up, if that PRP hit. I mean, it was going to hit. Lacerda, he's there, he's there for a good time, not a long time, but like... <laughs> It's one of those things. Um, I mean, he's like Sam Alvey now. It's like he must know where like the, the, the bodies are buried. Like, not many people get this many opportunities. Let's just say that. Yeah. Moving on down, we got Ferris uh, Zayam taking on Claudio Puelas. Zayam is a minus 210 favorite. Puelas can be had for plus 180. I mean, we haven't... <laughs> When's the last time Puelas fought? Because, like, here's the problem with him. In the modern day of MMA, everyone can kind of do a little bit of everything. And if we've learned anything from Puelas is he seems like a one-trick pony at this point. The volume on the on the feet and the stand-up is pretty non-existent. I guess it's been almost a year and a half since his last fight. Um, that was a pretty ugly performance against Dan Hooker. Got absolutely battered when they were on the feet. Wasn't able to get, you know, his patented knee bar. Um, you know, threw in a, a few attempts to try to do so. But, like, once that... If you have the defense to that, he doesn't seem to have very much answers. Now, it has been a year and a half. He is pretty young. Uh, he's not that young, but he's, like, young enough that um, I'm sure he's working on the... He's only 27 still. Sure, he's working on other game or other star, uh, other stuff at this point. But Zayam's kind of showed some pretty significant improvements outside of uh, losing by rear naked choke to uh, Terrence McKinney, who came on early and found that submission, as Terrence McKinney does, which I suppose is the risk of the Puelas fight here um, against Michael Figlock, who was like a well-touted uh, European standout. Um, did very well, showed like an evolving game, uh, wrestling takedowns, obviously pretty long, decent cardio, and he seems to be like, has most of the tools all together there. So he seems to be a guy on the rise here. I don't, I, until I, until further notice with Claudio Puelas, I, like, I kind of look at him as a one-trick pony. And it's not like way back in the day, we had like Ian Entwistle and those kind of guys. It's like, <laughs> the game has evolved so much at this point. It's like, if you only have a couple tricks, it's like, you get exposed pretty fast. And I feel like that's what's happened with Puelas. Maybe he comes out and we're like, okay, he's putting some of the other pieces together. It's very possible at his age, after the beating he took against Dan Hooker, but for... You know, I can only kind of judge what I've seen at this point, and what I've seen is I think fair as I am. Will mind his P's and Q's, stay out of those types of positions, and probably box him up on the feet. What's your take here? Yeah, I'm gonna agree. So Paulus is a guy that was fighting in the UFC. He was like 21 years old, and then six years later, he's now 27. <clears throat> there, there really is no evolvement to his game. Like he hasn't, he hasn't gone to the next. He hasn't progressed to that next stage. The wrestling is still fairly rinketing. You know, not terrible, but. Pretty rinky dig. Striking, yeah, the volume's not there. The power's not there. You know, his, the, the comfort is not there. And he's just, he's resorted to just going to these leg locks, going to these leg locks, going to these leg locks. Time and time again, you see the striking doesn't look any better. The wrestling, pretty well the same. 
and he goes to these leg locks. If he gets the leg lock, yeah, it's going to look good. If he doesn't get the leg lock, you mentioned Ian Entwistle. Yeah, great example, because Husmar used to get them once in a while. But the guys that don't get them, like Ian Entwistle and Matus Mondonka, I don't know what the hell he was thinking. You can't just hang on to a leg forever and eat punches. It's, it's not a great way of going about it. Now, keep in mind, Claudio Puelas, uh, we actually watched this place at your place in Toronto in your basement, but um, Felipe Silva, he's getting annihilated. Like his debut in the UFC was uh, the ultimate uh, fighter Latin America finale. He got knocked out by Martin Bravo. Knocked out by Martin Bravo. who never went on to much after that. Then the very next fight against Felipe Silva, 70 significant strikes landed by Felipe Silva, two knockdowns. The kid is just sitting on his butt. He looks desperate. And he rolls and he grabs the leg and he caught him in the third round knee bar. Huge comeback win. It was like, oh, damn. And that became it. Keep in mind, he went to decision with that Marcus Mariano guy, Anderson Silva's buddy, who was a total putz, landing 22 significant strikes over 15 minutes. His fight with Jordan Levitt, he decided to out-wrestle Jordan Levitt, which I don't think is that impressive, truth be told. And he landed 20 significant strikes. His fight with Chris Grootsmacher, 43 his fight with Clay Guida didn't really obviously need any. Just got grabbed that knee bar. He's become just a leg locker. The thing is, is that I don't think it's a sustainable game plan. And eventually you're going to run into these guys that are just going to put on heavy pressure, hit you in the head, break you down. Hooker is one of those guys. He actually also fought Ian Entwistle. And he did the exact same thing to him. Ian Entwistle dove on the leg. Hooker just folded into him, started landing ground and pound, softened him up, beat him up, caused him to quit. He did the same thing to Puelas. When you look at Fraz am, he's 26. There is improvements from this guy. He's not like Paulus going through the motions. He come to the UFC. There's some serious holes in his game. He's a French Muay Thai fighter. He's long, but he's super flat-footed. He's got suspect takedown defense, and his volume's not all that good. He went 2-2 two and two in his first fight, four fights in the UFC, and they actually cut him. <clears throat> they cut him, but then they had a show in Paris, France. So they were like, who are our local French fighters? And they didn't have a whole lot. So they re-signed him for the card. Gave him Figlack. He's a 2-1 to underdog over Figlack. And he gave up one takedown on five attempts to Michael Figlack. His takedown defense looked a lot better. The very next fight against Jai Herbert, he stuffed all six of Jai Herbert's takedown attempts. You can 100% see in real time, he's getting a lot more comfortable in there. His takedown defense is pretty solid. It's getting pretty solid. Because he's tall, he's using that tall man, kind of don't let them take you off your feet. Um... It's working for him. He's good up against the cage. He's got that slick Muay Thai, you know, the, the, that, that same slick ability to find the target that allowed him to beat Jamie Malarkey, land the better punches. Only now he's starting to add more volume to it. That's the difference when you're fighting in the UFC at 23 to 26. You should be that much better. And you see him getting that much better. And in four years from now, when he's 30 and entering his prime, he's actually going to be pretty decent. Puelas has not made those improvements. He's relied on just grabbing the leg. Because when you got three wins by knee bar, it clearly works. It's what you're going to do. It's who you become. So could he grab a leg and pull off a knee bar? Like, yeah, it's certainly possible. But I think Zayam keeps the fight upright, lands the shots, slowly starts to hurt him, slowly starts to tire him out. I'm a little bit worried the French fighter at altitude. Normally his cardio is good. But at altitude, he could fatigue. And Puelas, even when he's fatigued, he's still going to be diving on legs. It does make him dangerous. It is a volatile fight. It's one you should probably pass on altogether. But yeah, we got to make a pick. So the pick is for Azaya. All right, moving on down. We got Luis Rodriguez taking on Dennis Bondar. Rodriguez, a minus 120 favor. Bondar can be have plus 100. Who you got? Yeah, this is just be a quick play. I'm going to go with Bondar. He's a slight underdog, you said? Yep. 
I mean, it's yeah, pretty yeah. much a pick on but the market is moving. Like Bondar opened as the favorite and it's flipped slightly. Minus one twenty plus one hundred. Um yeah, it's a slight underdog, I suppose. Yeah, and again, it's one of those fights that I would see as close. So it's almost like you would you would classify it as a dogger pass situation. But with Luis Rodriguez, there's just he's got he's got some proving to do. He's only twenty four years old, so he's still young. This is his UFC debut, so it's a tough spot to make your de- debut. Still young, still green. He fought in the contender series, geez, like three and a half years ago against Jerome Rivera, and like didn't look good. Truth be told, loses, doesn't get a contract. Obviously, loses, and then goes back to the regional scene and. He's beaten some like lower level level guys. It looks like takedown defense is a problem for him. It looks like he's not the biggest guy going. I honestly feel like, and cardio is also maybe a bit of a, a, an issue as well. His fight with Victor Moreno, a few fights back, split decision win. Uh, you can 100% see him getting tired. And so with Dennis Bondar, I don't rate him. I don't think he's good at all. He has one of the worst records, like beating a lot of bad guys to build up a record then comes to the UFC and has looked awful in the UFC. Lost to Malcolm Gordon, and then his last time out against Carlos Hernandez, he got knocked out with the second lap. They could call it a headbutt all they want. He got knocked out with the second lap. Is 0-2 in the UFC now. It hasn't been a particularly good run for him. But I'll admit in that Carlos Hernandez fight, like the guy is super aggressive. He comes forward and he swings. He's generally the one marching forward, and he kept a decent pace against Hernandez. A lot of these guys that are a little bit wild and erratic, uh, they will tire. In, in his case, he didn't necessarily tire. He put some pressure on him. He landed the two takedowns. He was continuously coming forward. Unfortunately, Hernandez is someone that I think is a smooth operator, and he eventually caught him. So good win for Hernandez, but not necessarily a terrible performance for Bondar. When I think Bondar in this particular spot, yeah, I mean, I, I think if he's the one coming forward, he's a little bit bigger. He's a little bit more aggressive. He's going to be swinging those shots. His cardio, at least on paper, seems to be better. His forward pressure seems like it'll be effective enough. And he has the wrestling advantage. So he's got multiple paths to victory. Again, he's just he's one of these guys that I don't trust. And now you're putting him at altitude in a spot versus a local guy. And, you know, it could fall off the tracks really, really quick. So do you want to put a ton on it? No. Do you want to have a ton of faith in it? Probably not. But I got a feeling that Bondar just marches him down, marches him down, keeps coming forward, mixes in the takedowns. And if the judges are fair, then that'll be enough to win the decision. I'll side with you, but I I think this one's a pretty rightful coin flip, to be perfectly honest. I'm not the biggest Dennis Bondar guy, but... What I see from Luis Rodriguez doesn't really impress me either. It's uh, 13 fights on the card. I know you have to... I imagine Bondar's probably going to be pretty low on the the uh, the PRP. Yeah. Could end up actually being the PRP pick, the actual bottom line. Um, I don't think it's too far off, to be perfectly honest. Um, not really impressed with either one of these guys. Don't want to get too sunk in on betting either side here but i'll pick bondar for the purposes of this show we got felipe dos santos taking on victor altamirano dos santos is a minus 300 favorite altamirano can be had for plus 250 i took some uh, plus 600 dos santos by sub here he subbed a bunch of guys on the regional scene i mean obviously he came in on really really short notice against um Against Manel Cop and boy, oh boy, like this kid's got skills. 
But I think like Altamirano, as we always say, he's Mexican. It's like I think he can kind of take. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure from you know everything I've kind of seen. When you do finish him, it's typically by submission. Um, he really doesn't. I don't. I don't believe he has any sort of knockouts on his record. I was actually I was eyeballing it earlier today. I was hoping another book that was going to open it up would open up a better price, but then they opened it up at plus five seventy five. So I took the took the plus six hundred. Just a small little thing. I mean, Jared Brooks found the rear naked choke against Altamirano uh, before. And I think the biggest problem for him is that, like, his takedown defense is very, very suspect. Um, Tim Elliott was able to get six takedowns. Obviously, Tim Elliott is a great, is a tremendous uh, wrestler and had a lot more experience. But, like, Carlos Hernandez was able to get two takedowns. And then you go back to, like, that Candelario fight on Dana White mm. Contender Series. They, they both got Robert. takedowns, but, like, Candelario got five takedowns on him. It's like, I think yeah. that can be exploited here. Felipe Del Santos may be like, I don't even want to wrestle, and maybe it never actually comes to fruition. But I think there could be a much easier path to a finish for him in the submission department. But, like, otherwise, love the kid. I think he looks super, super talented, but minus 300, it is... A massive step up from like, you know, they weren't expecting much from him. He came in, went way above expectations, lost a very, very close decision. Probably like not a robbery by any means, but like he performed great against a very legitimate, experienced uh, opponent in Manel Cop. Obviously, this is kind of a spot for him to like get back on track. Is it the classic letdown spot? I mean, potentially, but. Um, that's why I'll get my, I'll get my fill on the plus 600 by sub. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the money line here at minus 300? Yeah. The money line seems a little bit much cause it's a flyweight fight in these flyweight fights. You see time and time again, they are usually very competitive. There's tons of stuff going on. Both guys have decent gas tanks. <clears throat> it just ends up being a lot more competitive than you'd want for this type of money line. But if you want like a greasy, low-key sprinkle, haven't put anything on it myself yet. I don't even know the price, but you'll look it up for me right now. But mm-hmm. what would be the Felipe Dos Santos by knockout? Knockout. Well, KO. Uh, best on market is plus 540. Yeah, that's crazy. Man. That's a good Felipe number. Santos, the other, the other yeah. book that has props open is... They opened it at plus 375, and it moved down to plus 300 already. Yeah, that I, I, clearly people are seeing the same thing I'm seeing. But Felipe DeSantos doesn't show knockout wins on his record. He shows a bunch of submission wins on his record. And Victor Altamirano's never been knocked out. But when you watch tape on both these guys especially, you you get a serious impression that Felipe DeSantos is about to catch him with something and knock him out. Altamirano, on the one hand, it's like, Oh, he's never been knocked out. You know, Mexican, you guys talk about that durability. That's fair, but keep in mind, Tim Elliott is not a power puncher. Vinicius Salvador is not really all that good. Daniel Lacerda is a power puncher, and Daniel Lacerda dropped him. Landon hurt him. Carlos Hernandez is not a power puncher. Carlos, Delan- Carlos Candelario, straight-up grappler. Nate Smith, straight-up grappler. Chris Ocon, grappler. Jared Brooks, grappler. All of these guys are grapplers. When you watch him in there, dude, he dips and he dives and he puts his head in harm's way. Like someone's going to boot him right in the face. It is going to happen and it's going to happen soon. Like he's getting away with it because he's taking on wrestlers and grapplers. 
but one of these like sharp explosive guys going to catch him bobbing when he meant to be weaving and it's not going to go well for him. And that's kind of what I think happens here. What Candelario has two things, or sorry, not Candelario, what Altamirano has is two things. He's got volume and he's got that ability to mix in the wrestling. The thing with mixing in the wrestling is Felipe Dos Santos, although Manel Cop did take him down on his only takedown attempt, the guy's got good scrambling abilities and a good ability to get back up. So if Altamirano goes with that game plan, he himself doesn't have great top control taking on a guy that's hard to hold down. Those takedowns are not going to bear a whole lot. Like you, He might hit the deck for two seconds, three seconds, five seconds, but if he gets back up, it's going to be a problem. Then Altamirano's got to go to plan B, which is land the volume. The thing is, when he lands the volume, is he's like a poor man's Diaz brother. Like He's just pawing stuff out. He's, he's there to get countered. He's a tad bit slow. He's a tad bit hittable. And I don't think he's the most durable guy going. 33 years old, not old. But it's old for flyweight, man. This other kid he's fighting is 23 years old. He's 10 years younger than him. He took his debut against Manel Kopp, a top five contender, on like a week's notice, replacing Kaikara France, a former title challenger, and landed almost 100 significant strikes on the guy. So with a full camp and and, and more maturity and like just going to keep getting better. And Altamirano, meanwhile, I don't, I don't, I don't know... If he's going to be like the most competitive guy going, he's falling into like journeyman gatekeeper type status. But, but that being said, his fight with Carlos Candelario on the, on the contender series, I thought he lost. They gave him a split decision and it was a close fight. His very next fight is UFC debut against Carlos Hernandez. He loses a split decision in a fight that people thought he had won. He has the ability to keep these fights close. If it goes 15 minutes in Mexico, it's a bad price tag to be betting Felipe DeSantos based on a he looked good really he looked good in a losing effort in his debut. You know who else looked good in a losing effort in their debut? Mentus Mendonca. And then in his next fight, he dropped down a weight class and got a full camp. Brain dead stupid. I don't know if that was offensive to anybody, but just the guy's not smart. Not in smart. Maybe he'll be better this time around. What I'm saying is sometimes we get caught in this lull of like Dude, the guy lost, but he looked good in his debut. You expect more of them, and it doesn't necessarily happen. I do think Felipe DeSantis is the real deal. I do expect something out of him. But I might be foolish. I might be setting myself up for disappointment by playing this number, or at least playing this number and having a whole lot of faith in it. I think he wins. I think he should win. But I wouldn't completely write Altamirano off as having no chance. Well, I bet it a plus 600 when we were literally starting to talk about it. And they moved it to plus 500 by the end of you talking about it. So I move lines. I already won, Cody. I got CLV, 100. Dog. CLV. CLV. It's like, pff, I did my job. I won. That's how it works, right? I can pay my bills. In both ways. Can I, feed my, can I feed my dog with CLV? Asking for a friend. Um, all right, finally. We've got Muhammad Naimov taking on Eric Silva. Mohamed Naimov, a minus 450 favorite. Silva can be had for plus 350. Who he got? <laughs> Honestly, this should be straightforward, right? You have a massive favorite in Naimov. Naimov's been looking really good. Eric Silva is really not all that good. It just seems like a straight up, you know, foregone conclusion. And it probably is. But I got like this, like nagging, this nagging little, you know, the devil on my one shoulder and the angel on the other. Like there's something at the back of my mind being like, Make Eric Silva the PRP pick, dog. Not a whole lot of investment, but if it hits, it's going to skyrocket the price on these things, and he's got a shot at winning. It don't look sexy, but it is possible. 
So with Naimov, of course, the guy is a uh, he's a physical dynamo. He's coming off a pair of nice wins. He's still only 29 years old. He trains at altitude already over in Colorado. There's good stuff to like about him. In the Malarkey fight, he lost the first round, but he comes back and he melts Jamie Malarkey in the second. And his next fight against Nathaniel Wood, he gassed out and held on for dear life, but he got he got the takedowns. He got the wrestling. Here's what I don't like about him. First of all, the guy is a gas bag. Elevation or not, he's just he, he's too physically strong. He fights like your typical Tajikistan fighter where he comes at you and he comes at you hard. But there's a lot of exerted energy in the in the process. A lot of these scrambles are for are just, you know, balls to the walls, 100%, 100%. Just just two years ago, he's losing to Colin Anglin and, and Olivier Murad. These are bad losses, and they're not that long ago. More troublesome than that is that Colin Anglin took him down three times. In his fight with Jamie Malarkey, he also got taken down three times. In his fight with Nathaniel Woody, he got taken down twice. He'd be rocking a 57% takedown defense, and yet wrestling and being strong and physical, that's kind of his game. He doesn't have takedown defense. Now, people will say, well, dude, he's coming off a career best win over Nathaniel Wood. He cashed as a plus 265 underdog. He headbutted him, he eye poked him, and he grabbed the cage on multiple occasions. So he damn near cheated to beat Nathaniel Wood, first of all. Second of all, Nathaniel Wood is a bantamweight that moved up to 145 to fight Namov. So yet Namov was able to take down the bantamweight and hold him down for a bit. He still gassed in the third. He still almost got finished in the third, and he still had to result to fouling the guy three, four times just to get the job done as a plus 265 underdog. And before that, his fight with Jamie Malarkey, he got taken down three times in the first round and He's lost the first round. And then... Yeah, he was getting his ass kicked, and then he melts Jamie, who, who's kind of known for suspect chin right now. Mm -hmm. So when you look at Namov, it's a history of he's mad suspect. His cardio suspect, his wrestling suspect, his striking suspect... Is just, he's like, you know, he's one of these tough guys with a crazy last name that ends in an OV that you just, you don't want to bet against. And because a lot of people probably took a bath, myself included, took a bath on him versus Nathaniel Wood, you remember it as being like, ah, dude, Nathaniel Wood's actually good. And this guy just beat him. And he beat Jamie Malarkey. He is suspect and he is waiting to get taken advantage of. Now, is Eric Silva the guy, 36-year-old Venezuelan fighter, 0-1 in the UFC? Like, the one thing I will give him is that the boy can wrestle. 100%, this boy can wrestle. And when he comes over to the Contender Series and he takes on that uh, Anvar Boy Nazarov. Boy Nazarov's a glory kickboxer, long credit, 300 Muay Thai fights, spends time at Tiger Muay Thai. Why would you want to stand with him? Eric Silva does, and he just juggernauts him to the ground, beats the crap out of him. First round TKO, smooth money. His fight with TJ Brown, this one's a lot more interesting. He did gas, and it it was a sloppy fight, but he landed three takedowns. He landed in some really nice positions, but TJ Brown's a BJJ black belt. And TJ Brown, who doesn't have great cardio himself, is slick from time to time and has decent wrestling. Is a guy that's landed seven, eight, nine takedowns on, on UFC opponents in the past. TJ Brown on a good day is serviceable. And I feel like Eric Silva fought a good version of him, had tons of moments. Unfortunately, TJ stuck with it. In this fight with Namov, you see, TJ Brown can grapple, can grapple off his back. He he loves the front headlock. He can transition. Namov, I think if you take him down, you could hold him down. And that's all Eric Silva has to do for two rounds. Now, will Silva gas? Likely. But Namov will probably also gas. And Namov's actually taking on a real size... 145 right here, so it's not going to be as easy as Nathaniel Wood. It's at altitude. There's just enough 
muddy in the water for that. I would I would not want to touch a five to one Namov ticket. I don't know who set this line. I'm sure it got steamed to where it is right now. And sure he could win. Sure he could win. But for this price tag, I I, I fade him and I put Eric Silva as the PRP pick. That would be the bottom level. 13 fight card means we're gonna have six six tickets and a last line PRP. The the line's think, getting more ridiculous, Cody. Naimov's not good. Naimov's minus. Have to find out the hard way. Bet online has them at minus five seventy five now. People are steaming that minus five seventy five. When I made the boards literally before we started, it was minus 450. There is massive steam coming in on them. I suppose the, the concern would be Eric Silva, both of his losses coming by submission. Maybe that's a little bit of a problem for him, but you brought up good points. Like TJ Brown, like people don't love him, but like he is a black belt in BJJ. Got Trains to Bryce Mitchell every day. Yeah, got caught there. And then he got, he got subbed by some dude in 2016 obviously this guy's got started very very late in mma wrestling like he's He's a wrestler though yeah 36 years old i don't know it's uh i'm not i'm not disagreeing with you at all i think it's a pretty clear dogger pass i'm not interested in parlaying muhammad naimov guy who's low volume you know pulled the rabbit out of his hat against malarkey malarkey took him down three times you bring up a lot of good points there um yeah, if you can just take him down, hold position, make it ugly. It's not like there's like any sort of home cooking on this thing. If anything, maybe Silva would get a little bit more fans down in that part of the world. Um, yeah, it seems pretty dogger pass to me. Um, so things that I have bet, I took Prado KO1 plus 1300 because that sounds like fun to me. And I think Zell Huber's a little bit chinny, but a bet I'm... Uh, expecting to lose. Took some of his uh, KO prop plus five seventy five as well, because you know I'd be I'd feel I'd be floored if he got a second round knockout, and I only had the round one ticket. Uh, Duncan money line uh, plus one sixty five. Felipe dos Santos by sub plus six hundred. Got CLV on that one already, so I already won code. Uh, parlay pieces that I'm interested in. I've got Moreno. Rosas, Barcellos, Chires, and Zayam. Um, haven't bet those, but those would be the pieces that I would kind of mix and match. Just a new thing I'm kind of adding to my repertoire this year. Uh, those are like my most p- confident ones. I'm not stealing the PRP, but I, you know, I've got my own guys that I kind of isolate or like the the chalk that I'm feeling better about uh, this week. And uh, Brian Ortega, I'm considering Brian Ortega, but I'll see where the market goes. I'll see what it looks like at the scales. Scales like this line's been out for a while, so I don't feel like I would be missing very much. And maybe I'll pick up something in interviews this week and I'll back right off of that. But I liked what I saw from him in the short, short window of time that their first fight happens. Like I want him to fight exactly how he did there, just not have his shoulder uh, pop out. Cody, and with the PRP. This week, we're going to go with Brandon Moreno, Brian Ortega, dog number one, uh, Raul Rosas Jr. We're going to go with Daniel Zellhubers. Uh, I can't take two plus 400. I guess I'll go with Yerigui. I'm a coward. I'll take Yerigui. But I will go Chris Duncan. Chris Duncan's dog number two. Ronnie Barcelos, uh, Jesus Santos Aguilar is dog number three. 
Edgar Chavez, Faraz Dayam, Dennis Bondar is technically dog number four, Felipe Dos Santos, and then I will not be a coward and take Eric Silva. So, yeah, five underdogs on 13 fights. Last week it was favorite city. Dog city's coming up eventually. Hopefully it's a five-dog dog city this week, and we've got those five dogs. But beyond that, again, there's there's like some big plus money out there. So even if you can hit a couple of the underdogs, you can make it worthwhile. And then for me, yeah, it's similar to what Paul's saying is just try to key in on your favorite three, four, five, six is pushing it, but get to six. We hit six last week. We'd love to hit six again this week, but kind of zone in on, on who you like. And then again, I mean, there's certain guys on that Bellator card, like that's MMA, dude. I don't want to jinx it, but like, how does Jason Jackson lose? I, I can't see it. I can't see it. But it's MMA, so someone's going to probably shit in the apple pie. Thing is, they don't always shit in the apple pie. Sometimes you get out scot-free. Hopefully, that's one of these weekends. So it's just like a fight fan's delight on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. All you're missing is a Sunday Fury FC show, and you pretty much have the Royal Flush right across the board. But yeah, tons of betting opportunities. So maybe just like see what you like, see what you're most comfortable or comfortable with, what you're most confident in, and then go from there. But uh, it's... In Mexico, it's largely South American fighters. At the very least, this is going to be a really fun card, very entertaining card. But of course, the goal is always make money, and that's the most fun of all. So entertainment aside, hopefully we can make this one a profitable one and uh, a good one for the audience and ourselves. Yeah, you could bet Jason Jackson or you could bet Clarissa Shields at basically the same oh. price. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. I have no idea who she's for. I'm literally just looking at uh, at fight odds. Like, I have no idea what a Kelsey DeSantis is, but if she can grapple a little bit, that'll be a lot. Even just a modicum of grappling will make that a little bit sweaty. So, yeah, pick your spots, as always. There's plenty of opportunity coming your way this weekend. So that is it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. For producer Megan and Cody Safdick, I'm Paul Shaughnessy saying goodbye and good luck. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.